0: Welcome to Building Sustainability, the podcast that brings you interviews with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. I'm your host, Geoffrey Hart. Welcome to episode 21 of Building Sustainability, and this is the first of a double bill with Barnaby Carter, aka on the spoon. This episode is sponsored by Cyclair. Cyclair has knives and tools for all wood carvers from beginners to experts. A wide range of spoon knives, axes, chisels and more specialist tools from many manufacturers including Mora, Beavercraft, Condor, Flexcut, Narex and Wood Jewel. Cyclair Shop. Great value wood carving gear delivered quickly. That's C Y C L A I R E, Cyclair. Before we get into today's interview, there's a few bits of podcast news. Uh, big news is on May twenty third. This podcast was ranked thirty second of all podcasts listened to in Gambia. <laughs> uh, I I don't know what was going on that day. Uh, I've checked the records and we didn't have a particularly high listenership in Gambia, uh, so I can only assume that there was no one else making podcasts that day. It's a strange but enjoyable fact. I also want to say a massive thank you to uh, the first Building Sustainability Heroes. Um, They are Alastair, Amanda, Jim and Tudor. You are incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, These are the first folk who have gone over to the uh, Building Sustainability Patreon page. Uh, That's patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. And they've given a couple of quid a month uh, to help produce more episodes of Building Sustainability. If you are enjoying this podcast, then... Head on over and for less than the cost of a coffee a month, you can get exclusive content. Uh, We've got a new feature where you can propose questions to ask to the the next guest. Uh, And I've got some interviews which I'm going to chuck up there early because they're all sort of sat in a pipeline. And uh, you guys can have them first. Yeah, and and I know money is tight uh, for everyone at the moment. So uh, if you want to help out for free, uh, you can just leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And that is exactly what someone called Ewalj, <laughs> uh, E-W-A-L-J, uh, this is a review they left on Apple Podcasts titled Dream Podcast, five stars. If you had asked me what my ideal podcast lineup was, you couldn't have come up with a better range. I've thoroughly enjoyed all the podcasts so far and look forward to many more. A diverse range of characters, some well-known and many not, with fascinating and in-depth conversations in an eco and ethical direction. Jeffrey has a very gentle, unassuming, inclusive interview style, which is very welcome. I love this grassroots podcast with its egalitarian host. Wow! Thanks, Ewal J. That is... Oh, that's just a wonderful, uh, just a wonderful, uh, compliment to receive. And you know what? It's, it's my ideal podcast lineup as well. Uh, I don't, I can't remember if I've really spoken about this, but, uh, the reason I started this podcast was that I wanted to get out and I wanted to talk to people and I wanted to keep learning. Um, and I figured that I'd do a podcast because then I could give all of that learning to to everyone else as well and um, so it's great to hear that uh, you're enjoying it uh, as much as i'm enjoying making it okay so on to this episode it is with barn the spoon uh, so barn is uh one of the the more well-known spoon carvers maybe the most uh probably in the uk the most well-known spoon carver um, this episode is what I would call a profile of a craftsperson. Uh, there's a few of these in the, the series. I think craft is really important as it's it's sort of rooted in slowing down and appreciating the sort of small objects that often take a long time to make and are, are sort of superior to mass produced things. Um, Barn has a particularly interesting story, which I know you're going to enjoy. He's He's really honest about uh, some of the mental health benefits um it's a thing we've talked about before in this podcast with dave cockcroft just about the the mental balance that um doing craft and, and sitting and doing something with your hands can can give so yeah enjoy this chat <music>
2: why uh well i guess the the simple explanation of why Barn the spoon is that i hung out with uh mike abbott for quite a while and he used to call people by their trade or quite a few people um, right okay can't actually think of anyone right now there was a guy called jay Treebog bog um right. used to make composting toilets uh and oh well no the ones that you have with willow beds i don't know what are those called um
0: uh, oh, and
2: beds. jerry the clog yeah that's the one reed beds i'm not entirely sure no. actually anyway i uh I thought, well, I had a, a strange email address from a, a, a nickname I had as a child, which was Withers. Okay. Um, and I thought, well, I should have an email address that reflects what I do. Uh-huh. So I just had Barn the Spoon at hotmail.co.uk, and that's yeah. I guess from there, people started calling me Barn the Spoon. Uh huh. And then I called my shop Barn the Spoon as well. Yeah. Um which I didn't want to at the time. I felt like a bit of a sellout.
0: Why was that selling Um, out?
2: But I'm way past that now. Well, because I was extremely humble in quite an arrogant way, like so many craftspeople are these days. Uh, And I was so evangelical and it was all about the craft and I was this kind of pure monk of the spoons. And um, I felt awful calling the shop Barn the Spoon. I wanted to call it like just traditional spoons and spatulas or something mm. like that. But I'm glad I didn't, because it helped me make a living. So that's
0: good. It's uh, created a brand, hasn't it? it? It's good to be alive. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And I guess it's it's kind of recognizable. Yeah.
0: People remember remember Barn the Spoon. I do. My mum remembers Barn the Spoon. Yeah. She uh, Yeah really? <laughs> she saw you once on uh i'm terribly sorry was, about that she saw you on like the one show or something like that Did you ever do that
2: yes yeah i didn't go on it they just came and did a video piece right
0: okay well I, yeah i got an email from my mum straight away saying oh that man that man that you were at grow london with he's he's just been on the telly so she's she very excited <laughs> um so how um how did it all begin how how did you end up uh, making spoons oh
2: Wow. So I haven't done an interview like this for such a long time. I have to remember what my standard answer uh, well, is. Well, luckily uh... I, I'm really crap at interviewing. So, you know, it'll be <laughs> it'll be really easy. <laughs> um
0: so how did I get into spoons? Well, let, let's maybe start start with um cuz I know you started earlier. Well, so
2: I was blessed with a wonderful neighbor mm-hmm. who was also my CDT teacher right. at school and um because my parents worked in this kind of boarding school which is where I went cuz mm-hmm. cuz my parents worked there we lived in this strange kind of community um where all the teachers were like live in so my neighbor's um Mr Jones who sadly has passed away now um He was my CDT teacher, um, and he was a short, stocky uh, Welsh guy um, who was incredibly enthusiastic about woodwork right and loved teaching kids. and extremely ambitious actually with with the things uh, we made. Um, but I, I remember being on a lathe at school when I was like nine.
0: Nine. Um,
2: That's and just being, yeah, just being kind of left to it. <laughs> <laughs> what, were,
0: what were some you of know, the things with, you were making? You know,
2: um, using fret saws and belt sanders and yeah. Well, he was really into kind of imagination. Okay. Um, if you imagine kind of teachers that came came round in the sixties and seventies, uh, they they were quite mm. <laughs> quite into the kind of libertarian approach. I'm not even sure that's the right phrase, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember I made a weird box uh, that was made out of rope that was glue gun together. It was rope that was glue gun together uh-huh. into a cone. And it had an MDF lid with a turned kind of knob on the top as a handle. Yeah. And then... The upturned cone sat uh, in a hole on a square bit of MDF. And then that MDF, because it had the, the peak of the cone coming through the bottom. Yeah. We might have to include a sketch with this. <laughs> um, but that, that kind of MDF platform was held up by four wooden cones that I turned as the feet that in turn went in into the, the holes.
0: Yeah. Uh, how old were you
2: when you were making this Um, god knows i think probably nine or ten um yeah yeah but he was great so um i think my first thing was actually making a walking stick Mm -hmm. which the groundsman just cut a bit of holly from a a holly tree yeah Um, and i kind of with my swiss army knife embarked on my first woodwork project which is essentially peeling the bark off a stick and sanding it Um, yeah i think
0: that was probably my first my first project too
2: yeah i think that most most people's experience of of wood tends to be that right just little pen knife and a bit of fresh wood and i guess often making kind of spears and that kind of thing Mm. Um, So, yeah, when I was, I got more and more into turning. Uh, And it's actually that I've, I'm award winning. I didn't know whether you knew that. I I didn't know that that I've won an award for, for, yeah. At age 13. Yeah. Yeah. I got the wood turning prize Uh at school, which is the only prize I've ever won. (laughs) (laughs) Ever, which I, yeah, I'm not going to go into that, but once at the Bodger's Ball, I really feel like I should have won the the half-hour challenge, right. but um let's not talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> but yeah, so I got really into turning as a kid. What
0: was your what was your winning piece? At,
2: at uh school? I think it was just overall. I think he just liked me and felt sorry for me because I, <laughs> I was not very successful at anything else. I think he created the prize for me. Um <laughs> but I still have it somewhere actually uh oh. yeah hilarious um but yeah because of him i ended up uh and because of my parents uh being you know supportive i ended up getting a little lathe in my um parents garage so i kind of took over a quarter of the double garage mm-hmm. and i had a black and decker workmate, and a black and decker drill um and a lathe And some screwdrivers. That's about it really. Yeah. (laughs) And with that I made all sorts of shit. Um Yeah, lots of bowls and lots of toadstools and candlesticks and
0: sculptural pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So you were turning the bowls on the on the lathe? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there was a I think it's still going. A company called craft supplies the home of wood turning Mm -hmm. um which is based in derbyshire was based in derbyshire and they had this amazing catalog that had i don't know like a hundred bowls turned from all these different species and then you could buy the blanks right so you could get different kind of square section blanks for spindle turning and bowl blanks for turning bowls um And I used to really kind of lust after it. It was like this amazing catalogue of dreams, basically. (laughs) Uh, And kind of all my weekend jobs and pocket money would be spent on craft supplies. And I'd buy sandpaper and different types of bowl gouges and save up for fancy chucks and, yeah, make things out of... What I would be horrified now of kind of extremely exotic woods like Zebrano and Pink Ivory and Purple mm-hmm. Heart and
0: that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so how did that that sort of early uh, love of wood uh, sort of develop then?
2: Well, um, I mean, I really loved love the turning a lot. I was mm-hmm. completely obsessed with it. And form of bowls, Um, you know, I would (laughs) as as like a kind of 12, 13 year old, I would be obsessing about the shapes of bowls, which I I have no idea how I didn't kind of see that as weird. Right. Um, But I think because this teacher had been so supportive. Yeah. It just felt really normal, even though no one else was doing that um yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i used to just beaver away in the garage by myself (laughs) um and my parents were very supportive Um, and my mum's kind of into like watercolors and quilting so she's a bit crafty Mm -hmm. but really you know my parents weren't very practical at all um so i was kind of figuring out stuff by myself and learning from this guy who was my neighbor and be- this is before the internet. Um, yeah. So I used to get a lot of information from Woodturning Monthly magazine, uh-huh. uh, which I was an avid subscriber of. And, um, yeah. that uh, So I kind of got more sculptural, really, and, like, totally random. You know, like, kind of Hepworth and Nash kind yeah. of just making little forms. Um, but if you imagine, like yeah well I I suppose a kind of Hepworth sculpture that would fit in your hand yeah that that's the kind of thing that I was making and I'd I would take them to school and so these things sometimes they'd be turned some I'd do this kind of offset um is it called eccentric turning where you kind of turn it and then you change the centers and return it Mm. um and I would polish surfaces and texture surfaces and all sorts of weird stuff. Like I'd kind of microwave things in oil right? Uh, and use a hot air gun. I had a hot air gun. I have no idea what I had, why I had a hot air gun. Um, but it was brilliant. And I'd, you know, I'd just chuck like some Danish oil on something and then blast it with a hot air gun. And the oil would kind of fizzle away and it would burn. And yeah, just like create these crazy little sculptures. And I would go to school, and I'd have—I um, used to have this stuff called micro mesh, which goes to like a twelve thousand grit. Right. Um, and I was really good at polishing small bits of wood. <laughs> um. So yeah, what what a strange strange young man I was. You you went full
0: geek on it. I I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I properly did. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of it kind of carried on. During my teens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. Um, But then I guess I got more interested in the kind of classic things like smoking dope and thinking about women. Right. And I have to say it was mostly thinking about women. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah. Um, And then, so then I actually went back basically because I was a bit of a dropout um i ended up having um a year off after doing a levels uh uh, without really a plan so i went back to the school that my parents worked at and i worked as a teacher's assistant for the guy in the cdt
0: oh nice department
2: um so and he was then he'd got the book green woodwork okay Uh, And he was like, right, this is I am going to retire to Normandy. He'd already bought a house probably for like five grand uh, made out of mud bricks nice in a really beautiful part of Normandy. Uh, And he was doing that up and he was like, I'm going to retire there and make Windsor chairs. Um, So, yeah, we we started bodging when I was like 18. Yeah. Yeah. and we had a thing called the Bodger's Club at, at the school yeah. where we had these pole lathes and shaving horses um, and these beautiful hand forged tools uh, by a lady whose whose name I'm afraid I've completely forgotten. But she was um, quite big in the Pole Lathes Association early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unfortunately, I think she died quite young, um, which is obviously very sad, but uh, they're wonderful tools. We had like six sets of pole lathe tools and crazy little side axes with a very cranked handle. Right. Um, and, you know, all, all of the turning I'd done up until then had been on an electric lathe. Mm. And my, my opinion really was that this was just quite a quaint kind of reenacting thing that we were doing. Um, but then the first time I used a shaving horse, I was just absolutely astounded uh at how functional it was Mm. um and yeah we uh the they built a tudor house at the school which is what it's kind of fondly called as the tudor house which is like an oak cruck uh kind of four by eight meter structure with a thatched roof um that i was involved in at the start although i wasn't actually there when they kind of did the thatching and wattle and daub and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it became quite a thing at the school and all all because of this book, Green Woodwork, that Mike had written. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, Roger Jones's kind of
0: enthusiasm for it. Um, Uh, I guess, you know, pre-internet, you didn't really have a sense of who else was doing this, whether it was a big thing or a small thing or if it was just you you and mike
2: totally yeah i mean i wasn't really plugged in to what was going on in that scene anyway because i was you know i I was buying these books by power lathe turners and these magazines which were designed to sell machinery really Mm. um so greenwood work on that side of things just wasn't talked about at all um although actually robin wood did pop up once uh with his Mary Rose Bowls in a in Woodturning Monthly or something like that. Uh-huh. Um but uh yeah I mean I you know I wasn't I wasn't much of an explorer really. So I mean I, I wasn't out there trying to figure out what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um I was just along for the ride in many respects. So Roger had the book and um I think he met up with some someone. I think the pole lathe association had maybe just started. Uh I'm not very good with the kind of timelines of of what's been going on. But I think Roger did meet up with someone that had a pole lathe. um, And they must have met up with some timber framers Mm. um, to get going with the kind of Tudor house thing.
0: Nice.
2: But yeah, I mean, really, this was a long time before the internet. And um, yeah, I guess it's not... um, it was just a completely
0: different world back then. Yes, very much so. Um, so how how did you, well, was did you then have a sort of light bulb moment and think green woodwork was the way? Or what was the, the sort of push or the pull uh, away from sort of seasoned wood and, uh, and into the green?
2: Well, it, it kind of was in fits and starts, really. So I used to make some fairly sculptural pieces from green wood, but I knew that they would split. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often used to get hold of greenwood and turn it on the lathe and just like watch the pile of shavings just like, it was just a really beautiful thing compared to turning dry wood.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, but I did it for fun because I knew that the wood would split and it just wasn't a thing. Um, so it was really confusing. Yeah. The kind of greenwood side of it, um, we still weren't quite understanding it and mm-hmm. um it's really difficult to imagine not having that knowledge because it seems so flipping obvious now <laughs> how to stop a bit of wood from splitting which direction the fibers run in yeah uh and it's it's hard it's hard to forget like you know thirty not thirty how many is it twenty twenty odd years of knowledge um it just seems obvious uh but yeah back then green greenwood was still a bit of a mystery um and so i then i actually went off to university um and studied biology and i was really that kind of sculptural stuff i was doing turned into more this kind of um making wooden jewelry okay um and that that was very much with uh like a Dremel and a fret saw and polishing bits of wood. And Mm -hmm. I did some stuff with silver as well. And um, so then kind of being drawn back into green woodwork was actually through my best mate who became completely obsessed with Ray Mears and was planning a kind of trip to the Arctic and had bought all the axes and knives. And, you know, I came along for the ride a bit, really. So we used to go, we used to go to the woods, uh and yeah just hang out with the fire and these axes and knives and um that's i guess where the kind of whittling first came back in mm-hmm. well i suppose that's where that's probably where the kind of whittling came from when when we were doing the green work at the school it was very much kind of turning a dibber um or i guess looking at making windsor chairs yeah um it wasn't about using a knife, really, at all. Um, so, yeah, that really came from kind of Ray Mears. Um, I mean, this could go... I mean, this is probably getting boring now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Depends how long you want me to talk for. I could fill in every last detail. <laughs> um, but the, the long and short of it is that I, um, I think, like probably a lot of our generation and maybe a lot of the people slightly older than us really into kind of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall with River Cottage and Grand Designs with that guy who does the chestnut thing what's he
0: called? Oh Ben Law.
2: Ben Law yeah um and you know I think that and Ray Mears really cemented in my mind a way of life that I thought was the right right thing for me yeah um so i kind of left university um having done more woodwork and more stuff with axes and knives um and feeling like i wanted a more kind of holistic lifestyle that was more organic um and not really knowing what to do Mm -hmm. sounds like Um, leaving university yeah uh and at some point in those kind of four or five years, I also went into rehab, which was a bit funny. Right. <laughs> um, so that all happened. I didn't really know what to do, but I I think I thought I was going to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do a PGCE at some point. Um, oh, no, I decided not to be a teacher. That was the whole thing. Yeah, originally I was going to be a teacher. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a teacher. Um And the plan was to live near Bristol, uh, but I had to go back to my parents, pay off my overdraft, save up a deposit and move back to Bristol. That was the plan. Um, But I ended up working at the school again. Right. Yeah. So and then I decided to leave that. I was going to do a PGCE, um, but changed my mind decided i wanted to get really good at something um and i was gonna run an ethical business Mm. (laughs) Uh, yeah making wooden jewelry and it was gonna be amazing and i ended up in a bed sit in bristol uh getting breathing problems from using a dremel in my bedroom right um because I have kind of asthma stuff or
0: whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, having it in the bedroom means you're, you're breathing it all the time. All that dust. It wasn't sensible.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, I had a little Henry Hoover with its, you know, the special HEPA bags and stuff. But, yeah, it wasn't good. And um, no one was buying this jewellery. Or more to the point, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I would go to a shop and be like oh would you like to buy my jewelry and they'd be like oh that's lovely i reckon we could sell those really easily um probably sell it for seven pounds fifty and i'd be like oh dear that took me three hours to make Uh, right yeah so it just never went anywhere um and i think with that and the breathing problems uh i was trying to become more efficient so i was i got hold of some green wood and uh was shaping it i think with a knife but i was still sanding it actually so i was sanding it underwater so that the i mean it works quite well underwater actually um but so that the dust didn't go up in the air right uh and then that's when i went off and applied to do like the kind of six month thing with mike abbott
0: hmm
2: i feel like i nailed the start of the story but the last few years of this yeah it's got a little bit confused (laughs) no i mean i can't really remember if i'm being completely honest (laughs) just make it up it's fine. i try not to think about my past too much um (laughs) yeah but it was essentially something like that like i tried to run a business and it didn't really work um Hmm. So I kind of signed out of life and went back into education up in up in the woods with Mike Abbott. And it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of thing were you doing there? Basically teaching for him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, his his uh, in those days, he was doing the frame chairs, um, which I think are really beautiful and Mm. a really beautiful way of making them. Um, But they're really quite easy, which is great. So you come on a class and all the hard work has been done already in thinking about the sizes and the steam bending and the jigs and the setup. Mm -hmm. And um, the punters just get to have a lovely time, hang out on a shaving horse, peel nice shavings, go home with a chair. Um, So I had an amazing time. Uh, And the first year I was up there, um, I was like the second assistant. There was Mm -hmm. like a main assistant. Uh, and I was kind of number two and then I went back the year after as the main one. So I kind of hung out there, um, for the best part of two years, really Mm -hmm. off and on, um, helped, helped him with, uh, he used to do some forestry work in exchange for his rent. So I got my chainsaw ticket and helped him with that one season, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, back when I was much fitter uh, and could pick up, pick up logs that I just wouldn't even dream of now. I mean that, you know, I just wouldn't be able to pick them up, but even if I pick up a big log now, like my knee feels like it's got a bit of sand in it for a couple of weeks. Uh, Whereas then I would just, I would literally just cut down a tree, pick, chop it in half, pick up, pick up one side with one half of my body and the other side with the other half of my body oh dear it's awful getting old <laughs> it really is
0: <laughs> there's many benefits i should say but yeah
2: the physical uh, uh... i can't think of any <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, at this point uh obviously if mike uh, started calling you barn the spoon that means you'd started carving spoons
2: well no so he didn't call me barn the spoon he right. used to call other people like that and actually, I just I created see. an email address that was Barn the Spoon. I, oh, I see um, again, Yeah. 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 So, but I had started carving spoons by then. Mm-hmm. I'd actually done, I mean, I'd done a fair amount already. So when I was 18, um, I mean, there was one in Mike's book. I think that was the first spoon I did. I think I actually taught spoon carving before I'd even carved one. <laughs> we actually made salad servers with these kids. When I was uh, teaching, when I was eighteen, as mm-hmm. a teacher's assistant, and um, they just made them out of softwoods, uh, cut them out on a Hegner uh, fret saw, mm-hmm. and they they coloured them in with food dye. It was amazing. Right. <laughs> um, but I think so. I think the first spoon I made was from Mike's book, where he shows you how to turn turn it on the pole lathe and then split it in half. Oh, and... yeah. Yeah, so my first spoon, I think that was my first spoon. Um I did that way. So I think I turned it on a pole lathe and then cut it in half with a bandsaw and then clamped it to a workbench with a jig that I cut out on a bandsaw and used like a file gouge. This guy had like hundreds of these file gouges. Mm-hmm. Um because that was the thing, you know, making wooden sculptures. That was that was the thing with gouges. Um, a file. Yeah, I think gouge. that was the first spoon. Yeah, P. You know the Swiss-made ones. File. I Don't know if I do. Oh, oh
0: with a silent oh, P on the front. I see. You say yes. I do know those. Not. How do not, you say it? No, I, I mean, I, I think I say profile. File. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Uh, no, I Pile. just thought you meant, Piles. meant uh, uh, like a file as in no exactly
2: sorry yes exactly file the swiss made gouges with the beautiful kind of are they octagonal handles i really should know this i think they're octagonal Mm -hmm. they might be hexagonal but they were they were they were the woodwork that was the woodwork of the kind of 70s if you weren't kind of using a router and a bench saw then the other the other two forms of woodwork were doing sculptures with, with gouges. Yeah. Um and probably being quite moody, maybe an alcoholic of some kind. <laughs> or like a bit of a nerdy turner in your kind of shed in the garden. Yeah. <laughs> that was all that was on offer.
0: Slim pickens.
2: <laughs> no, I know. But I don't think that's that far from the truth, to be honest yeah i mean this is well before you could uh buy fancy planes and um get nice spoon knives
0: mm. so so at what point did you get what to... were we talking about well i think we were we were talking about when the spoons started coming into your world
2: oh yeah and so the next spoon i made was actually one uh there's a turner who'd written some books called phil irons mm-hmm. i really hope that's his name he seems nice. I follow him on Instagram. I actually met him at Art and Action and um, bought one of his books. And it had these really cool little turned caddy spoons where you use like a hole saw with the teeth cut off, ground off as a scraper to make a perfect sphere.
0: Oh, uh, I'm feeling oh, I very think self-conscious
2: about that. silent peas at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> sphere. Sphere. Uh, I had a girlfriend once who, who after about four months, said... I never realized you had a lisp. Um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know whether it's true. Anyway, let's not talk about it. <laughs> the point is, these uh, these little caddy spoons were quite cool and you'd make them kind of perfectly spherical with the um, hole saw scraper. And then you cut them out um, on the bandsaw and then return them. Um, and yeah, it was quite cool. But they definitely lacked. The kind of freedom you get with carving with axes and knives, I guess. Because mm-hmm. you're kind of forced into a certain shape. So that, yeah. that was the second spoon. Or that I mean I I made a heap of them really. Uh and then Ray Mears. Um that that was his kind of bushcraft book, was quite into spoons as well. Right. So that was at university, and then up at Mike's. It was the thing, really. Um, and I think that was probably, in a large part, down to me. Um, but Mike had some Svantijav hooks and some very blunt uh-huh. Mora knives. And I don't really remember seeing any sharp Mora knives until I met Fritjof, Um Yeah. Because no one was very good at hollow grinding them. Um mike had incredibly sharp turning tools which he would hollow grind on a tall and then hone on japanese stones yeah but the knife didn't really get that treatment um but yeah we would just hang out by the fire and carve spoons that's that's when i got really into it i think yeah, yeah. and they're so much better than chairs i mean chairs are such a hassle if you want to redesign a chair you've got to go back to the drawing board you've got to make components you need to get perfect bits of wood then they need to dry and chairs are cool and i've you know i've made a few yeah and i've helped you know over 100 people make a frame chair so i really know i do know how to make a frame chair um and I've done, obviously, I've done a fair amount of things like benches and stools and wind the chair stuff, but not that much wind the chair stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, spoons, spoons have that immediate gratification um, that someone like me needs.
1: <laughs> we'll be back after a quick break.
0: Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. So you've been living in the woods uh, and making spoons around the campfire. Mm. Uh, how did you then sort of transition into a, a full-time spoon carver? What was that that sort of process?
2: Um, was that a so, conscious
0: decision?
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, so I moved on to the farm to work for the farmer um, where Mike had his workshop. And the farmer was a really wonderful. He was a really wonderful person. Um, Unfortunately, he no longer owns the farm. Um, But yeah, so I lived in a static caravan um, for the winter after the kind of two years off and on with Mike. Yeah, Um, and I had my chainsaw certificate uh, and I drove a tractor. It was it had a cider cider apple farm. Mm-hmm. Um, so did some work on the farm. Um, it was fantastic, actually. <laughs> it was really great. Uh, so I had this static caravan with a wood burner in it. Um, and it cost me seven. Oh. And
0: can you hear me? Yeah. Are you throwing the phone around? Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh... good. <laughs> uh... <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, so it was 70 quid a week, uh, and he he would pay me £70 pounds for a day's work.
1: Well, no, it wasn't
2: that. Maybe I had to do 10 hours work, um, 10 hours work a week, something like that. It was really yeah. good. Um, so I helped him with the harvest and then um, did some forestry stuff and... It was great, actually. That was one of the things that was so beautiful about Mike's situation was that the trees had been coppiced and planted kind of 20 years prior to me arriving. Um, uh-huh. So this farmer was then harvesting this wood for firewood um, and had a huge wood burner that had a boiler that would do the whole farm. Um, and, yeah, it was kind of part of that, cutting the trees, um, thinning out, picking out wood for chair-making, um, and then I was collecting the wood in the winter and taking it to the barn, and then I was picking up wood from the year before and sawing that up and taking that to the wood burner.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's quite cool to be part of that process. Um, so, yeah, I basically was on the farm for a bit, and I was figuring out how to make a living. Um, yeah i mean the farmer was quite he'd offered for me to run some classes on the farm actually which i i was like really keen for uh and then kind of realized actually that's maybe not not that appropriate because mike's doing his classes there and Uh um i actually rent so there was a forge on the farm which i rented um so i had a forge as well i was making some hook tools got into some bowl turning on a kind of medieval style lathe mm-hmm. um and i was hanging out i did some work for toby and ali you know set with wood that do the oh, chestnut yeah, I know those. um so i did some work for them and yeah was kind of living the dream um and yeah i guess that's when i got really in spoons um and that's the first spoon club i ran uh was with a wonderful <laughs> Well, it's basically me and a guy called Will started it. It Right. I've forgotten his surname, but he's quite a short, stocky guy that worked for Toby and Ali. um, And he wanted to learn to carve a spoon. So he came around one Saturday morning. And that's when Spoon Club was born.
0: Aha. Um, We had
2: sausages, cut down a tree with a chainsaw without any ear defenders on. And I remember my ears (laughs) really ringing. Very bad. Uh, yeah. But we hung out, ate a load of sausages, carved some spoons, and I thought, this is just wonderful. Um, so then we got more people to come. Um, yeah. So Morris Clover, Toby and Ally, uh, Ben Orford and Lois used to come. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just became the thing to bring some sausages and I would have like an open house on a Saturday, I think. Yeah. Um, And yeah, from like 10 o'clock in the morning till like seven o'clock at night, people would pop in, hang out, have some coffee, eat some food, carve some spoons. Yeah, Spoon Club. Sounds good. It was, it was really great, yeah. Um, And then for various reasons, I ended up uh, in a bit of a bad way. I think that was kind of prior to Spoon Club, really. I think Spoon Club was part of my um, trying to socialise and improve my mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, But I went through like a kind of bad breakup. Uh, And that's kind of where the idea came from. Um, Toby and Ali had uh, travelled around a bit. Um, and they'd sold mistletoe before with a peddler's certificate. So that's uh-huh. that's where the peddler's certificate idea in part came from. I also knew these other guys that had gone around kind of singing, um, busking and sleeping in the woods. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of felt I needed to get away, um, was really into Spoon's and you know was quite a very specific time actually over christmas i'd gone back to my parents for christmas and i sat on the lino in their kitchen carving spoons on the floor um because it was the best way to kind of get rid of the shavings Mm. and um yeah i guess i was uh, in a very bad way mentally and um spoon carving was the only thing was the only thing in my life really and Uh uh I just made a very conscious decision to just keep carving. Just going to keep carving until I feel better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where it kind of came from. Uh, so I'd done all that Greenwood stuff. I'd been in the woods. I knew these people that had sold stuff on the streets. I needed to leave. I didn't have any money. I liked being in the woods. Um, I was completely insane, so it was quite good to have a lot of time by myself I mean actually maybe maybe people might not think that, but it was good to have you know and I spent a lot of time walking, yeah, a lot of time walking, um, so you know at least at least two and a half hours walking a day um, and then obviously some days I just walked all day, yeah, um to get from a to b uh and time alone in the woods and having a little fire and carving spoons. Um, yeah. So and I, I kind of did that off and on for three years. Um, so I, ne- I never I never slept out in the winter. Uh-huh. Um, so one winter, well, the first winter, obviously, I was on the farm. The second winter, I was helping this guy in Somerset help uh, to set up this kind of charity thing, um, yeah. the kind of commune. So I lived in this little shack in the woods. Uh, and then the last winter, I was actually in a house share in Bristol. Um, so I used to kind of walk down to the canteen on Stokescroft and sit, oh, sit yeah. outside there in Spoons. And I used to sit outside Browns on Park Street. Yep. Um, top of Park, well, on the Triangle in uh, sell Spoons. And that worked. I
0: mean, yeah, that worked. What, what was crazy people's really. reactions to, to someone sat, sat selling spoons? I mean, all sorts.
2: All sorts. <laughs> it's such a long time ago now, man. It's so strange to talk about it. I, I've, <laughs> I completely forget about all this stuff. Um, you know, I've had uh, people being like, oh, I hope you're going to clean those shavings up. Um, right real coming from a real kind of ignorance because you know like I'm sat in like piss and vomit and broken glass yeah I mean like all these disgusting things that people do in cities and kind of inhaling all these chemicals from the cars going past and then you've got this crazed old Tory coming past and saying I hope you're going to pick up those fucking (laughs) shavings like who who the hell do you think you are yeah unbelievable (laughs) It's like beautiful kind of perfect organic matter. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so you'd get that kind of reaction and then you get some people uh, who are just absolutely amazed. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And sometimes, and much, much more so than when I had the shop, I would have people that would come and hang out for hours. um, Yeah. Literally just come and sit down next to me and hang out and chat and yeah and then it just everything that you would expect like some people were incredibly flirtatious um Mm. just quite weird uh some people would be like uh from like a christian charity bringing food being like do you you want some food because they think i'm homeless I did have one person send their kind of toddler over to give me a pound coin, oh. which was very strange. So I felt so awkward because I wasn't begging. I gave him a spoon. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> what a deal! Yeah, yeah, I know. And then, but I guess back then I'd often sell a spoon for a fiver if I was desperate. And you got to remember, in those days, no one bought a wooden spoon. You know that. Would, yeah. I didn't know anyone that was selling, you know, properly selling spoons. Um, So we've all been helped a lot by the Instagrammers. um, Mm. And now I guess many of us are actually able to charge a reasonable price. um, So that it's almost, almost akin to having a trade where you're kind of, I mean, you're not earning as much as a plumber, but uh, it gets close to it, I guess. So that's good. But yeah, back then, you know, I was selling a spoon so I could buy a pasty and a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got to hustle, right? Like I lived in the woods, for God's sake. I didn't have any rent or anything to pay. And um, that's what enabled me to do it. I spent three years living off carving spoons. You know, Um, that's not an easy thing to do Uh, if you, (laughs) you know, if you had to pay rent full-time and yeah i guess i I suppose i got much better towards the end i didn't really struggle when i lived in bristol but i mean the rent was cheap i was just subletting a room Mm -hmm. in this house of just yeah it's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) so sorry i really go off on one i kind of no no um, that's that's all good I have no idea what kind of timeline I've just given you. Just like that, one no. thought goes
0: on to another. That, that's fine. Um, it's yeah, a very entertaining uh, uh, sort of spiel. Uh, spiel makes it sound that's makes it sound like I'm not enjoying it. I'm very much am. Um, well, I've definitely said these things before. <laughs> that's how I knew you'd be good on the, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I went through a phase well I mean I don't I don't really I definitely don't think about what I'm saying uh, but there was one interview I did where I said um, yeah the start of, the start of the piece was like it was just quotation marks it was like uh, I was born cesarean and they cut my face and that was my first experience of a knife um, Yeah I definitely regretted that yeah so you know what can you do? It's easier just to just to say stuff. I think. That's best. Not yep. worry too much. I mean, this was in like a random East End, uh, oh, right. like little magazine that was meant to be cool. Um, so right. it's probably read by three people. But it's funny <gasps> who reads stuff. Yeah. I, was, um, ever, I was on this thing. And, um, no, no. The first thing I ever had was I was in a big issue and uh-huh. I was actually hitching the next day and I got picked up by someone and they went, they went you're Bar the Spoon, aren't you? And I, it was like, I was famous. It was absolutely crazy. And uh, yeah, n- now now you never hear about anything. People always <laughs> think like, oh, have you you've been in national press or something that you can get loads of business from it? But uh, I was on a radio bbc world service thing that apparently has 700 million listeners um, wow i've never heard of i've never met anyone that heard it <laughs> <laughs> but i guess they're all in africa so yeah but... africa and america i guess yeah i don't know Who, do you know anyone that listens to world service it was uh... a
0: really good interview actually right I listened to it for a while because uh, my radio broke and it would only tune into World Service. Uh, that's right. my only experience of it.
2: Radio. I used to listen to Radio 4 a lot, but I'd always... Do you like the Archers?
0: Mm, uh, not really.
2: I listen to Radio 4. No, see, I Attention, really don't so like the Archers. Actually, like, when I hear hear the sound of the Archers coming on, I, like, race to turn the radio off. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's really like Marmite, isn't it? So half of your listeners are all going to be like, oh, this guy is a complete baddie. How can he not like the archers? Mm-hmm. Um, but oh well.
0: <sighs> <laughs> well, for those that are remaining, uh, so how, how did you come about uh, getting a shop in, well, what probably became a very trendy bit of London? Uh, yeah, how did yeah, that
2: So, I mean, it only became trendy after I went there. And it was mostly me that made yep, it trendy. Naturally. So um, it is awful because everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, like this awful hipster in this awful hipster place. But genuinely, there was nothing going on on that street when I moved there. Yeah, uh, there was just one coffee shop that was owned by a guy that had loads of money. Um, he was hardworking. He owned the pub as well. And he basically subsidised this little coffee shop um, to try and elevate, you know, the status of the street and make it a cooler place and hope that some of the shops would open. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But now, yeah, they're all, all of those shops are open now. So, the, the, I mean, there's there was a talling, tanning salon opposite me and a um, bubble tea shop and a heavy metal record shop and a guitar repair place and furniture design. And yeah, it's quite cool, actually. It is quite cool. So so yeah, I was still living in the woods. And at that stage, I was kind of ready to contribute a bit more to society um, mm-hmm. and to meet someone. because uh, You can't really... I was living the life of Riley in the woods, but I couldn't really contribute much. I wasn't part of the community. And, um, actually, it, it was through Mike Abbott. Someone had approached Mike because of his book to teach green woodwork at a school in East London. Yeah. And um, Mike put them on to me. So <laughs> can you hear me? Yep, sorry, you, you just went, went a this, bit funny. Sorry.
0: It's all right, I think you're just moving the phone around.
2: Yeah, no, I don't know why I keep doing it. Um, so, yeah, so I came to this school, it was like a special needs school, kids with behavioural issues, and I thought, brilliant, this will be something that I can do. I've worked with people like this before, I am one of these people. Um, and I went to the school, it was amazing. Um, and they they offered to pay me well. Uh, yeah. They had table tennis tables. They had a shower. So in my head, I was like, "This is perfect. I'm gonna, I'm gonna literally, I'm gonna live in the park in London." Uh, there was a park where I could get hold of trees. Town yeah. Hamlet Cemetery Park. Oh yeah. Um, run by wonderful people, Terry, um, and I've completely forgotten his name, which is awful. Anyway, the guy that introduced me was Paul. Oh, and Ken. Ken is the main guy who kind of keeps it all together, mm-hmm. uh, and is a w- really wonderful person. They do a lot of stuff with ex-homeless, ex-addicts, uh, kids groups, um, just community-minded, um, mm-hmm. and kind of wildflower meadows and cutting trees and managing diversity and that kind of stuff. So they, I, I was. I was getting wood from them if I came to London to sell spoons anyway, um, having been introduced by Paul. Um, and he was a wonderful man in terms of kind of helping me sell spoons on the street because he used to sell silver. Um, he'd go to India and buy silver jewellery and um, sell it on the street mm-hmm. back in the 80s, I think. So he he was uh, incredibly helpful, actually, back then. Um, so yeah, I thought I was going to live in the park, get my wood from there, go to the school. I could have a shower before teaching so the kids wouldn't be thinking, who's this smelly man? Yeah. Could get my table tennis fix <laughs> um, and I was going to do like a day a week there um, and then just be street selling spoons and living the dream in London. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah I had no idea that it would go on for nearly nearly 10 years um which I mean we talked about this just before I don't think we've actually kind of mentioned it but you know, I've left London now so yeah um, that's been a big change very recently um but yes yeah, so I arrived in London to do that uh and then things kind of snowballed from there so I knew a guy who had a room to rent um, and it was very cheap and it was very close to the school and so I did that so (laughs) I didn't have to sleep in the park and that was great although I did sleep on the floor for the first six months and I still wore a hat every night I went to sleep yeah Um, and still yeah still did a lot of the things that had just become really normal Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have to dig a hole in the morning to have a crap. That was the biggest <laughs> difference <laughs> uh, And there was a sofa to fight over, which uh, was awkward, living with a couple, and there's like one sofa um yeah, so I really I kind of just existed in my bedroom very much like I'd done in the woods, where it, instead of kind of sleeping on the floor in the woods, I was just kind of sleeping on the floor in a little room. Yeah. And I had a Tormek, which was amazing. That was the best thing about moving to London. So Mike Abbott gave me his Tormac, which but I mean, actually the guy from Axminster, I think, gave um, Mike back in the eighties or early nineties or whenever it was. Um, and Mike had got a new one, and he passed that on to me. And I was, you know, sat cross-legged on on my floor in my bedroom, learning how to hollow grind a knife without jigs. Um, yeah. Living the dream, basically.
0: Just you and a tour, Mac. Just, I mean, that's all I had. <laughs>
2: uh, well, actually, so so actually I did, because um, I had a chainsaw uh, and I bought a sight box. So I, I had these things before I had somewhere to live. Um, so yeah. I actually had a sight box with a chainsaw at the cemetery park um, whilst I was still living in a wood in Oxford. Um So, yeah, those were my biggest extravagance. I think that sight box cost me like 400 quid or something. Right. But it's been great. You know, these massive metal things that are like concreted into the ground and has a key and no one can steal your fancy chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. Really brilliant things. Um, So, yeah, I owned that and I owned a tour mech. Um, And that was it. Yeah. Uh, so the, so the shop came about how? So the guy that I'd done, that, that had been the main apprentice, the year, the first year I went up to Mike's, he'd moved to London to do music mm-hmm. uh, and he'd bought this property uh, and there was a music studio downstairs and a little shop at the top. So I said, you know, Tom, who has just very recently had a baby, which is amazing right um rent me your shop yeah i mean that makes it sound very simple i think <laughs> it took quite a lot of persuading yeah yeah but um yeah what a strange thing and i and the <laughs> i mean it's hard to describe the shop but it had this weird platform that was actually uh where the stairs went downstairs um and I just sat on top of that, because I'd been so used to just sitting cross-legged to spoons sat on the pavement, I didn't really know how to do it in a shop, so I just kind of sat on that, and it just looked, it must look absolutely ridiculous.
0: Um, it wasn't a, a big shop by any means, I think people might be imagining like a, you know, a Boots or something, like a big, big uh, yes, thing. Yes, not one of those sort of the size of a
2: I mean something sh- like shed, a boots on it? a high street would probably cost you I don't know forty-five thousand pounds a year and rent and another kind of 20 25 30 in business rates yeah and then bills on top and then staff and yeah, yeah. which is why you don't have uh <laughs> that's why you don't really have people in shops um doing craft most people live live where houses are cheaper and um you don't have expenses like that so yeah. yeah the shop i've never actually i mean i really should i'm we must have measured it uh but i mean you've been in it is it like yeah. it's probably like four four by three meters or something, something like, like that? that yeah you're probably it's... good at measurements with your timber framing oh
0: yeah I, my memory's not so good though
2: no me uh... neither <laughs>
0: too many yeah i mean it's not not big it was lucky you were selling small things because um otherwise it would be full very quickly
2: yes i mean it is the kind of shop that you can't really have more than two customers at once would be a Mm. bit of a nightmare um but we were never that busy i suppose (laughs) you know back in the day it used to get quite busy at christmas time we used to have a queue outside right um well especially when it was the thing to get. Uh yeah, so I'd be
0: literally carving them carving them as quick as I could. Um Yeah. And, and so it was working. It w- it worked as a premise, you know. You you were renting a shop, selling spoons and making enough to to live on. Yes, yeah, totally, yeah.
2: Um Yeah, I mean I've never been particularly good at keeping track of exactly what goes on. Um, Mm -hmm. So normally that's just like handing in receipts to the accountants and these days it's to the bookkeeper. And I still don't really have a firm grasp of what goes on. Uh Um, Back in the day before VAT, it was a lot easier. Um, But yeah. Uh, And I suppose, I mean, I was used to not having any money Mm. and I still don't really spend money. Um, I used to put money in those uh, what are those machines in bet shops called oh the, so, the, the terminal yeah. things yes yeah, yeah where well, you put like a £20 note in and it doesn't come out again but uh, yeah I used to do that so I mean there was a surplus of money for a while and um, gave it back to the government via, via these fruit machines whatever they're called it was roulette <laughs> I used to put them in that um, it's a bit naughty really <laughs> so yeah those days where the expenses were very low uh, well and truly over so yeah. most of our money seems to go on tax these days which is no bad thing um, yeah. and obviously supporting the people that kind of work with me um, but yeah back in those days it was very easy just to get by for me and I, I think a lot of us that were once young men knew how easy life was certainly back then as an individual you know you're only having to look after yourself and you're in your 20s yeah not not very difficult um but certainly things have got a lot more serious (laughs) the last four years um trying to make money for other people and figuring out actually like how on earth do you run a business And having proper overheads and being VAT registered and all that kind of stuff is awful. Um, And, uh, you know, in many ways, I very much regret (laughs) going down that path. Um, Yeah. I do very much value the people that I I work with. Um, And it's hard to kind of let go, I think. It's kind of hard to let go of it for them and for that dream of creating something. but you know, within the climate that we're in now, I mean, so many people I know have just gone bust straight away. You know, that, yeah. that were struggling enough with Brexit, and uh, I'm very fortunate in as much as I had um, put aside some some money, um, which means that we should be okay. Uh, but we'll probably have to close close down one of the workshops in London. Um, right. so that we can keep keep paying people and unfortunately it's come at a bad time i've just left london and was hoping to expand the business to bring on a new employee to to right. cover what i would have been doing in terms of covering the shop um so that that has definitely i mean I, how how has it affected you presumably you had lots of building projects, and you've been doing this wood recycling, furniture making stuff in yeah. Bristol, right? That
0: well, presumably it's... that's
2: all had to shut up.
0: Yeah, it's surprisingly good timing for me actually, uh, because we decided oh, well, to that's have, good. A, have a fallow year from from building. Uh, I think we were we were just kind of burnt out and exhausted. Uh, yeah,
2: and join the burnout party
0: yeah. god just don't do well, it more than a few times <laughs> definitely the whole running your own business and uh, and having employees and it's hard it's uh, it's a lot of things that aren't the thing that you really love doing uh, yes it's kind of all you know, good at necessarily yeah you know yeah very much so
2: i'm really good at some things like I I am actually really good at grinding knives. I'm really good at table tennis. Um, spoons I can make <laughs> running a business definitely not one of my core skills. Yeah. Definitely not. Yeah. Painful and you learn you, you only learn by losing a lot of money. It's uh, yes. been my
0: experience. I'd, uh, yeah. I'd, <sighs> I'd definitely gone that route. <laughs> Yeah. so um it's sort of uh i guess you know the world has just gone online in the last uh month i guess but you'd sort of already beaten to it with, uh, with club.
2: yes Oops. yeah so thankfully that that is still bringing in some money yeah which is great um the yes yeah, what it is Yes. Well, so Spoon Club is a website which is designed to help people learn to carve spoons. Um, hopefully connecting people physically, which is not necessarily a great thing right now. Um, mm-hmm. but we're also doing online stuff. Um, and also there's just a library of videos. We've got nearly a hundred hours of video content. Um, we've actually got a massive giveaway that we're doing at the moment. So you get a free knife and whittling kit. Uh, if you sign up for annual membership or if you recommend someone, you can get like an axe kit or there's there's loads of different free gifts that you can get. Um, but yeah, basically, we take take on subscriptions and people have access to amazing content. And um, I guess uh, a lot of it is me kind of doing some tutorials. But there's also a lot where we've got guest instructors and hanging out and chatting about spoons and that's been a really rewarding thing actually we get a lot of positive feedback on that um which is great so it's a fantastic
0: resource
2: yeah thanks man are you just saying that
0: no no i genuinely (laughs) genuinely (laughs) mean that
1: yeah great
0: I hope you enjoyed that uh, as a it was a fine old ramble I love listening to barn talk we've known each other for a few years now and uh, I knew his story fairly well before uh, but there was a lot of new details in there which, uh, which I really enjoyed um, I hope you did too so as always uh, there's a whole load of links in the show notes people like Mike Abbott Robin Wood Ben and Lois Orford uh, I'll put a link to the Tormec. That was a a thing that uh, Barn talked about a lot. Uh, If you don't know what that is, it's a a tool for sharpening. So you can check those out. That's about it. Uh, Thank you very much for listening right to the end. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe to more. If you've already subscribed, if you have enjoyed this episode, then just head on over to your social media, share it, tell the world. That would be great and if this is your first time listening then make sure you check out dave cockcroft as well episode number four i think and yeah many of the others uh would be uh highly interesting to you so next week i'll be posting up the second part of this interview um which is barn and i talking about the new wood culture so make sure you come back for that one Next week I'm actually moving my boat to... Uh, it's being taken out of the water and it's having its uh, bitumen coat put on the hull, uh, which is always an interesting time for me. Being a man who deals very much in natural materials uh, to use what is essentially tar uh, doesn't feel great, but it also stops my house corroding. So yeah, it's... um a necessary evil at the moment. Well, thanks again and see you next week. Bye bye.